of Mary. I always imagine this carefree young girl smiling and singing, maybe twirling around in a meadow, very sound of music-esque, like she was in her own personal musical. And the message that was sent to me here in my childhood was, see, Mary's happy to have Jesus. And you can have Jesus, too, in your heart, and then you will be happy. And then we sing songs like, and I just forgot the song that I was singing, and then we used to do songs like, rejoice in the Lord. Revolutionary War. 
may or may find yourself in an improbable situation, just kind of like our new country was, where a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeats a global superpower. It was an improbable situation. One week before that youth event, that teenage girl, I had seen Hamilton live for the first time. And back then, it was new. You all have probably heard about it now. It's a musical about the founding fathers, specifically Alexander Hamilton. And the first half talks about his early life and the Revolutionary War. And the second talk, half talks about building a new government and how he served on President George Washington's cabinet and all the things that were coming with the political struggles of the new nation. And in a certain life, it could be really boring. It's a history lesson. But the fascinating thing about this musical is that the man who wrote it, Lin-Manuel Miranda, as you know, wrote it using hip-hop and rap and rhythm and blues and jazz. When Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson argue in a cabinet meeting over whether America should send troops to France, it's not just a conversation, it's a rap battle. It's like a mic drop at the very end. It's really fascinating. And as he wrote it, he said that he did this on purpose. He wanted this story of America's founding fathers to appeal to a new kind of audience. He did intentional, deliberate choices with the cast, too. Hamilton himself was played by an American of Latino descent. George Washington was played by an American of African descent. Hamilton's wife was played by an American of Asian descent. And this was intentional. Lin-Manuel Miranda says that Hamilton is the story of America then, told by Americans now. He did this to appeal to his intended audience. And you know, this is exactly what our gospel writer Luke did, too. When he wrote the Magnificat, Luke wasn't sitting on a rock somewhere listening to Mary sing the song, like capturing the lyrics as quickly as he could as they went by. Luke says in the first verse of his gospel that he set out to create an orderly account of the things of Jesus so that people would know what was true. And he made some deliberate choices. He rooted the story of Christ in the larger story of Israel because Mary's song sounds a whole lot like Hannah's song from 1 Samuel chapter 3. Luke wasn't Jewish, but he knew that this was an important piece of the story. But he also gave his characters monologues. This was a common writing practice of Greeks and Romans at the time. The monologuing characters would foreshadow events and tell important futures. In the first two chapters of Luke, four different characters have monologues. And Mary's is the first one. These were deliberate choices that Luke made to tell the story truthfully, but to let it appeal to his intended audience. So Mary's Magnificat, much like Hamilton, speaks of a world turned upside down, where the hungry are filled, where the lowly are lifted up, the proud are humbled, where rulers are brought down from their throne. When I was researching this sermon, I found out that those verses have been outlawed throughout history at various times in various countries. Most recently, I think, was in India during the British rule when the, when the uh, Indians were trying to come up with uh, independence. The British outlawed the reading of the Magnificat because it speaks of justice. It was too dangerous for the people to be reading. It happened in Guatemala. It happened in a few other countries that I can't remember right now because I didn't write it down like I should have. But throughout history, this is true of these actual verses. Mary doesn't just speak of joy, she speaks of justice. Only the thing is, this justice hadn't come about yet. Oppressive rulers were still on their thrones. People were still hungry 
stoned for this. And yet she's seen. Why? Well, this might not shock you, but I have a theory. Um, but in order to see it, I want to I want to keep it on. Okay, I'm going to stand still. <laughs> in order to see it, we need to think back to the verses that Kathy read. The verses that Kathy read happened right after the angel Gabriel has come and announced to Mary what was happening. And then the scripture tells us that she packed her bags. She immediately goes to this town in some hill country of Judea. She walks into Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And when Elizabeth heard her greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she looks at Mary and says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? When I heard your greeting, the baby leapt in my womb. And then Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who has believed in the promise that God gave her, believed that it would be fulfilled. And then Mary sings her magnificat. So the scripture doesn't make any mention of Mary telling anybody what the angel said to her. The, Mary, the, the scripture doesn't make any mention of her having a conversation with anyone before she left to go to see Elizabeth. And in fact, we have no indication that Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant outside of the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It seems like Mary got this announcement from Gabriel and immediately packs her bags and leaves. So I always assumed that Mary was excited. That maybe she's like, oh, I'm going to go travel to my best friend cousin's house and we're going to be pregnant together. You know, like it was an exciting thing. So she packs up and she goes. But I'm just not sure that that was what actually happened. Nobody has any indication that this young Mary had ever even met her elderly cousin. I wonder if rather than excitement, Mary was kind of scared or kind of shocked. I wonder about all the what-ifs that were happening on that journey south to the hill country. What if I mess this up? What if I made this up? What if nobody believes me? What if they're going to stone me? What if they think I'm crazy? What if I am crazy? Maybe this hasty departure was another way for her to process or ponder so she could figure out how to tell her being and her future husband what happened. Okay, but as I was pondering this, here's what I realized. We've already talked about Luke making deliberate narrative choices here. But Luke doesn't have her seeing the Magnificat after the Annunciation. Luke doesn't have her seeing the Magnificat on her journey south, which, by the way, probably took four or five days to get from Nazareth down to Judea. Even as Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, there has been no song. But then Elizabeth sees her and blesses her. And Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and Elizabeth believes Mary, and Elizabeth affirms Mary and values Mary. Mary finds herself seen and known and not alone, and only then does she sing her song of joy. Or maybe we should say it like this, only then was she able to sing her song of joy, because I don't think Mary's song came from her circumstances. It didn't come from seeing the angel, or we would have heard it already. It didn't come at, at, just as a result of being pregnant, like in Hannah's case, or we would have heard it already. Her song was the result of someone else's spirit-filled response to her circumstances. I'm going to say that one more time. Mary's song was not from her own circumstances but from someone else's spirit-filled response to them. And after Elizabeth affirms her and blesses her and reassures 
the Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, I don't think that's um, just easy, you know, phrase that we pass on to people. I think that's absolutely true. But that's not the same thing as this 
happiness, easygoing, all of our circumstances are going to make us happy all the time, everything's going to be great. Sometimes that joy is what we cling to by the tips of our fingers, is what we have to hold on to in the midst of all of our circumstances. This is the kind of faith that we need these days. Not a faith that's flimsy and easily breakable, but a faith that can hold on. But if faith is what we hold on to with the tips of our fingers, then I think community is the muscle that makes it possible. That young teenage girl from my story, she's now a junior in college, and she did eventually find her faith and her joy again. And both she and Mary are proof that God can bring about life in impossible circumstances, but they are also proof that God does not work alone. God uses the church, the body of Christ, the Christian community, to be instruments of love and beacons of God's presence to bring about God's justice. God depends on us to be like Elizabeth, to look at this world through the eyes of the Spirit, to find common unity, to hold one another up amidst what's going on. This community is where we see those who the world overlooks, where we believe and value the stories of others, even if they're vastly different from our own experiences, where we can find ourselves to be known and not alone. Will Willimon says the greatest gift of the church is the church. Mary can joyfully sing through her fear because Elizabeth was there to affirm her faith. Mary can joyfully sing of God's not yet filled promises because Elizabeth was there to bless her and remind her that she wasn't alone. Mary could joyfully sing because Elizabeth was there. And like Elizabeth, we get to be there too. We get to show up for the hurting and broken in our midst, in this room and in the community outside of this room, to see and to advocate, to remind them that they are not alone, that God has not forgotten them, and neither have we. Mary's song is one of both joy and justice, and she's only able to sing it in community. And here is my question for us today. Which of these two women do you find yourself resonating more with this morning? Are you more like Mary, like my young friend who's clinging to life and faith in the midst of impossible circumstances, who's needing to be seen and known, who's going through something really difficult and needs your community? If so, I hope you'll reach out to somebody around you today and let them be the church for you. It's a blessing and a gift to be the church for one another. But if that's not you, then maybe you can be someone's Elizabeth today. Someone who sees others through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, who affirms them and blesses them and reminds them that they are not alone. The church's greatest gift to us is the church. Let's be the church for one another. Together we can sing for joy. Together we can sing for justice. Jesus' reign ushers in both of those things. And we will find.